really deeply accept that your technology and operations capabilities are one of the strategic pillars of marketing. You don't have to be an operations person yourself. You don't have to be a technologist yourself. It's probably better if you aren't. But you got to make sure in your marketing organization, you've got that as one of the fundamental pillars because uh, without it, <laughs> the, the, the world is getting really difficult if you don't have that capability. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today, the one and only Scott Brinker. Scott is the godfather of MarTech, marketing technology. His daytime role is as the VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot. He's been there since March of 2021. He's also the editor at chiefmartech.com, which is probably the most popular MarTech blog out there. They're particularly famous for their annual uh, MarTech 5000, which is an infographic that lays out all of the MarTech landscape, the startups, the businesses that are in it. It's really fascinating to take a look at, so please do that. I really enjoyed this conversation with Scott. Obviously, he's not a CMO, but bringing his perspective from the technology side of the marketing industry, I think is so important. And I'll admit, it's something that I need to spend more time on learning, getting my hands dirty with, because there's so much going on. And if you're not in it, you're not even aware of how much opportunity there is with the technology and how quickly it's changing and how quickly it's evolving. So this is a huge advantage that challenger businesses really leverage. And so I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Scott and I talk about, you know, it's not just about the technology, but it's about the organization and the culture and the change that needs to happen within a company in order to leverage new technology. He talks about how to find new opportunities and try to stay on top of change, although he even admits that he can't stay on top of everything that's going on in this industry. But he's got some advice for how you can at least get started getting started. And also how within your team, if your MarTech stack is not where you think it needs to be, or maybe it's not even that existent, how you can get started with that. And lastly, we talk about some of the big trends that he sees coming up in the space, which is really interesting to just get his glimpse on, hey, what's the future of marketing technology? And he even shares a few startups that he advises that he thinks are really exciting and are going to do big things. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Brinker. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. How are things in my hometown of Boston? <laughs> Great to be here with you, Eric. It is, uh, you know, it's cold. It's still winter. <laughs> I tell you, I kind of miss real winter, though. I mean, I guess, I don't know, grass is always greener. Over here, it's kind of like 40 degrees and raining most of the time between December and March. So that's worse, I think. <laughs> Well, all I'm saying is I'm looking forward to summer and uh, uh, neither <laughs> neither of those scenarios. So. Fair enough. There you go. Scott, I'm super excited to dig into things with you. I've obviously known about you for a long time. I've seen you speak a couple times. I've, of course, followed the infographic that you share every year with great interest. And um, I think, you know, as people listening know, a lot of our guests are brand side marketers, which is great. But I would say most of them don't over-index on the technology side of marketing. So I hope people, I know people will find this interesting, just getting your perspective as 
you know, really the expert on, uh, on marketing technology. So let's get into it. Um, first question, what is a brand that you're obsessed with right now? Oh, great question. Um, you know, so a lot of my work is, uh, you know, in ecosystems within marketing technology too. Uh, and there's definitely a couple brands that just do an amazing job with that. I think probably Shopify is my favorite uh, at the moment. I think they've just done an amazing job with their platform, their ecosystem, and their broader brand. And uh, yeah, you know, this whole thing about the Shopify Rebel Alliance, you know, and the Amazon Empire and how this, that, it's really fascinating. So uh, yeah, very interested in them. So actually, let's talk about that for a second. So when you say ecosystem, can you unpack that? And what is it about Shopify's ecosystem that you've seen them do well? So there's a lot of talk about ecosystems for almost every company uh, at this point in time. It's not just a tech thing. Uh, certainly my work is more on the tech side of it, you know, but I think if we just start with the idea that the ecosystem broadly, you know, is all the other, you know, product companies or service companies, whether they're channels or complementary products, whether they're communities, uh, you know, influencers, I mean, even your customers, depending on how they engage, all these folks are part of a network, you know, that revolves around companies. It's been really fascinating to see companies get a lot more strategic about thinking of these not in their individual silos or their individual pieces, you know, but to start to look at managing them strategically as an ecosystem. Uh, now, in Shopify's, you know, case specifically, um, you know, they have this incredible ecosystem, not only of like service providers who help people build out their online stores and manage it and all sorts of consulting behind the scenes for that. Uh, they have this really great platform that uh, uh, lets other software companies integrate to Shopify. It lets software entrepreneurs build things specifically for Shopify. Um, and I just think they've done a really fantastic job of creating that. And part of what they celebrate is, hey, listen, you know, it's not just the revenue that Shopify makes. It's like, you know, the revenue that all of our merchants make. Uh, it's also the revenue that all of our partners who are helping, you know, our merchants uh, make. And really just celebrating uh, how there's so much win-win opportunities across everyone who's participating in that. I mean, I'll, I'll say in all, you know... Uh, selfish interest here. Uh, this is very much, you know, the kind of dynamic I'm trying to do at HubSpot uh, with our platform ecosystem. Uh, and so, yeah, I look a lot at Shopify because I just, I admire the way they've done it. Yeah. And HubSpot is one of the examples that I always think about when it comes to ecosystems um, as well. So Scott, from your seat, because you, you know, while you do sit within a brand at HubSpot, you also have this role as editor of Chief Martech. And so you kind of look across the whole landscape. So I'm very curious to get your input on something that you are most curious about right now. If you had to pick one thing, like one trend, one thing that you're looking at, what are you most curious about? Oh, it's tough because there's a couple big ones I'm looking at. But if I... Uh, you can share two if you need to. That's all right. Oh, all right. Now you got to be careful. <laughs> you give me that opening there. Well, let me say... All right. So let me start with one and then we can see where we go from here. One of them is, you know, this whole movement around no code. Uh, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard to some degree... Um, there's something really exciting happening there because when people talk about all these like no-code products or platforms or features, it's not just about letting people build software applications without having to code them, although that's some of what it is. 
I think of it much more broadly, that it's this really fundamental shift that's happening in technology where things that previously required a specialist or an expert to do anything, you know, in that area, you know, these quote-unquote no-code tools are helping to simplify at least the low-end and in some cases even the mid-end use cases to let general business users uh, and marketers be able to self-service more and more of their ideas. So it's not just things like, oh, I want to build an app, you know, because some marketers, you know, they do, but it's everything from like, oh, I want to create this particular content for the website, or I need this graphic design, or I, I want to do this data analysis, or I have this little workflow that I want to have happen, you know, across my team. All these things that used to require for any use case of that kind, you know, turning to a specialist, waiting for them in the queue, you know, paying the money for it. Whole bunch of ideas we never pursued because it just didn't even make economic sense to like bring out the big guns to address it. That this whole no-code revolution is like really empowering more and more business users and marketers to be able to self-service a lot of these low-end use cases, which it's like all this area that was essentially underserved, all these ideas that just couldn't get done because they didn't make sense with like the high-end, you know, uh, uh, experts. I think we're still very early in this transformation, but I think it really changes the bandwidth and net productivity that marketing organizations as a whole are going to be able to leverage. Yeah, and um, there's the, in order for them to leverage it, this might be too obvious of a thing to say, but there needs to be the technology that's developed, but then there needs to be the marketers that are open-minded enough and curious enough to go look for it and start playing around with it. Because it's so easy to just keep doing things the way they've always been done and not kind of be open to that type of change. And ideally, you're not just open to it, you're actually hungry for it. Um, and so the technology side is obviously one piece of it, but you know what I see in a lot of challenger businesses is just the way that they think about how technology is coming into the marketing space, they get there first. And that's as much of an advantage as just the technology existing is, um, so obviously, you know, you do a lot of work at Chief MarTech and your MarTech 5000, which is obviously a flagship, um, a flagship piece of content every year in the industry. So I'd love to have you unpack that a little bit, but maybe also as part of that, talk about how should marketers listening be staying on top of everything that's going on in the MarTech industry so that they can take advantage of it and have it make their job better, easier, and deliver more results for their business. Yeah, wow, okay, there's a ton of great uh, things we can talk about there. I do want, before I forget the thread on it, is 100% agree with you. Um, the challenge with all of this technology isn't really the technology itself. It's it's the organizational change. Um, it's in many cases cultural change of how we do these things. It's making sure that you know leaders in these organizations are not just signing the checks or the POs for you know these technologies, but they're making sure that the support networks internally, the enablement capabilities, the training, and even just yeah, you know, like the um, again more of that like cultural support of like yes, we want you to like you know take time and experiment with this and learn this. Um, those are hard investments, uh, and most companies underestimate that, uh, you know, when uh, adopting technology. I, I think the industry is getting 
better with that. I think we're headed in the right direction. But yeah, pretty much however much the ratio is you think in your head between investing in technology and investing in people, I'd go ahead and double the investment on the people side um, and you will get a lot more out of, you know, whatever technology you're adopting. Um, but let's, let's stay there for a second, if you don't mind, before we talk about how people can stay on top of all the change, because I think it's such an important point. And I fundamentally believe that like the newest technology, the best strategy doesn't matter if you don't have the right people set up in the right way to actually use it and execute on it to deliver results. And so, you know, culture is always the answer because it's the thing, it's the, it's the cause that leads to all the symptoms, good or bad. It is the well that delivers the water to grow your business. But at the same time, you know, sometimes, you know, when I say culture, I can kind of feel people be like, all right, well, that's like, a, I want like the hard answer. Um, and meaning like the specific answer that I can do something with. What I, I really like that idea of like, whatever ratio you're thinking about tech to people, flip it or double it. But I'm always curious to get people's specific tactical advice of if it is about culture change, organizational change, as you said, what specifically can people do if they're in a position to change the culture in their organization? A ton of stuff. Great question. Uh, you know, so let's, uh, I mean, one of the things to start with is even having this concept of almost like a technology enablement role or team in the organization that basically it is their full-time mission to make sure as we're adopting this technology, we're putting together the content, the training, um, you know, and not just like training like, oh, here we made a video, you should watch this, you know, done, like actually embedding, working with teams, you know, getting them through those first use cases, uh, workshopping uh, with them on ways to do that. Um, I mean, learning new things is, is hard, um, you know, and I think you really have to invest in both the talent that can help teach people this, but also making sure that you're allocating the space in people's responsibilities to be able to have time, uh, you know, to engage in that learning and uh, work with it. So that's, that's probably one foundation. I think the second thing is then once you've got the tools and people know how to use the tools, usually where things then get hung up is, okay, well, we used to have these processes. This is how things got produced. This is how things got approved, you know, and the inevitably like, you know, that pipeline of how things got done in some older approach, if you just try and now like, you know, bring in the new approach, like the constraints almost always end up being like, oh, well, now it's going to have to go through this review here and this, you know, approval there. And, you know, to basically make sure that that next step is to really like, from a process re-engineering perspective, start to look at how people are going to use these new tools and actually follow through it of like, okay, now it's a theory of constraints is, uh, you know, one of the ways to think about it. Like then what becomes the constraint? What's the next level? Like, you know, if, I don't know, for one example, say like before, if we wanted to build this, a workflow, we had to take a ticket and wait for IT uh, to build it. And that took 30 or 60 days. Okay, now we've got this self-service tool that lets us build our own workflows, but before we can actually go live with it, it has to go through uh, IT for review and approval. And that requires getting a ticket and being in the queue and waiting 30 or 60 days. Okay, we've got this like self-service, no-code workflow capability. The actual bandwidth of what's getting done is exactly the same as it was before. And so you have to look at that process and say, okay, 
how do we rethink this? Like, do we need IT to approve everything, you know, in that linear fashion? Or is there a way we can sort of flip this on its head? Can we work with IT to understand, okay, here are certain building blocks that IT can approve, pre-approve. Is there ways to set up guardrails that, you know, within the no-code tool that, you know, uh, IT can say like, okay, these are the guardrails. As long as people are within these guardrails, we're we're good, you know? I mean, any of the sort of stuff where you basically look through the process, see where the constraint is, and then work to see is there a solution, you know, that again, still respects the needs of all the different parties in this, but re-engineers that process to, yeah, now work it, you know, collaboratively with the new technology and the new way of getting things done. Uh, and again, this is just like the enablement and the training stuff. This is real work. Like this, this takes time, it takes investment, it takes energy. Uh, and if you don't set the expectation of really making that investment, uh, yeah, then like your actual adoption and value that you get out of this stuff, like never really gets over the hill. There's two parts of that that I really like and draw and want to draw out. One is a specific word you said, and that was rethink, because I think that's such a huge piece of it. It's what we think about a lot. It's why this podcast is called Scratch, because we believe when it comes to having a challenger mindset, whether that's about marketing or technology or culture, it all comes down to rethinking things from scratch for the situation that you're in today, not trying to drag what was done in the past into the present. And so I think there's a lot in there. The other thing that was more a thread that I'm drawing out from what you said that I really liked and think doesn't get doesn't get talked about enough is it's a real investment. You know, culture change, it's easy to gloss over, but it's a project. It needs to get prioritized, it needs to get put in your calendar, it needs to have a budget, it needs to have time allocation put against it. So, I like that and I think maybe that's part of the conversation that needs to happen a little bit more is kind of thinking of culture as a project, not just a concept. Yeah. You know, one other suggestion I'll just throw out in that direction, and this is a way you can think about like a concrete investment in culture. Some of the best ways you can do that is to actually get outside of your own organization. Um, we've had a little bit of challenge with this with COVID. Uh, hopefully we're starting to get past this, but even this idea of field trips to other companies, not necessarily peers who are, you know, like in your exact same industry. They might be in adjacent industries or different industries, but like, hey, listen, we want to take a group that we're rethinking how we're going to do this in our company, but let's go and talk, you know, to other folks who have perhaps already made that transition, you know, what's working for them, what's not, you know, and to have that be a way to like invest the time, um, you know, the right level of commitment, you know, even just the budget of like, hey, listen, we're traveling, we're taking this week, this is, you know, and then after this, we're going to like review these learnings, you know, we're going to sort of, you know, distill, uh, you know, what we think uh, we can synthesize, you know, into our plan. Um, yeah, just really investing in that. Um, there's, there's just so much gold to be mined there. Yep. Yeah. And again, in investing, putting money into it, putting time into it, that's the only way that's going to change things. Hey everyone, I wanted to interrupt this episode real quick to talk about some of the research that we are now doing as Rival in partnership with the test. And I wanted to see if any of you listening out there could maybe contribute to it. So what we're doing is we are looking at, it's probably gonna be on a quarterly basis, 
a few of the big trends that we're seeing driving the hyper growth of challenger brands. We're going to dig into those trends, do some of our primary research with a test, some secondary research, and we also want to interview marketers from challenger brands that are exhibiting and leveraging these trends and opportunities. So the ones that we're looking at for our Q2 report right now, we have one that's all about how challenger brands are able to appear bigger than they are, how they buy media, how they come across to the consumer, how they kind of start to establish that credibility and trust with mainstream consumers. So that's one. We have one that's around communities and how challenger brands are able to build communities around their brand. And then lastly, we're looking at one that we're calling the Great Crunch. And it's about how this post-pandemic world is coming into this crunch period with the current and you know pandemic world that we've known for the last couple of years. How are brands adapting to that? How should they be adapting to that? So if you are someone who is or knows a brand that we should be looking at to research these trends, or honestly, just an interesting challenger brand, I'd love to hear from you and start to work it into some of the research that we're doing. So again, please let me know and uh, reach out if you got any suggestions around this research that we're doing with the test. Thanks so much. So coming back to if that is about what needs to happen inside the organization, coming back to the question about how do people stay on top of all this change and everything going on outside the organization that they might want to bring in, what's your advice besides, of course, reading the MarTech 5000 every year for staying on top of what's going on in the field of marketing technology? Well, let me start by disclaiming, I am not able to stay on top uh, of everything that's happening in marketing technology. I mean, the, the, the world is just too large at this point. There's too much innovation happening in too many sectors. So if you're feeling, as I suspect many of your listeners are, just like, ah, it's overwhelming, let me assure you every single other person on the planet, including me, feels the exact same way. So it's not you. Um, and I think part of this then is the recognition that, okay, let's set our expectation <laughs> in an achievable level. It's not to keep track of everything that's happening out there. You know, what it is is to have a mechanism that is continually looking at new opportunities to make sure we evolve, at least relative to the expectations of our customers, at least relative to the competitive set, you know, that we're working against, you know, a set of capabilities. And again, just like with culture, you know, this really comes down to like investing in having, you know, capabilities dedicated to this. Uh, and so, so are two very concrete recommendations. One, I suspect most of your listeners already have like a marketing ops, marketing tech team. Um, but this is one of the functions that team should be responsible for, you know, is uh, aside from just the actual operational aspects of what you are running today and implementing today, they should be allocating, you know, a percentage of their time to sort of keep looking beyond the boundaries, to have mechanisms to do things like run pilot programs or run little experiments, um, you know, and to just keep keep learning and to be able to keep bringing that back to you as a senior leader. You know, you don't need to get into the details of the technology, but you know, really look to those Martech and marketing operations folks to be able to distill that down in a way of like, okay, based on what we're discovering here and how we're seeing this being used elsewhere, here's possible ways this might be able to influence our strategy, you know, our customer experience engagement touch points. And so you have a mechanism for that. I think 
as far as the ratios go, because, you know, sometimes there's, uh, particularly around MarTech, you know, there's, we, we make lots of fun of, you know, this uh, industry of people referring to shiny object syndrome and, oh, look, squirrel, you know, and like this picture of, oh, just MarTech people out there just buying lots of tools and trying lots of things. The reality is that isn't actually what, what, what happens, at least for the vast majority of people I know. I think it's just about like making sure you keep it in a reasonable ratio, which is, uh, and, and you can pick your ratio. I mean, my suggestion would normally be 90% of your effort should be operationally on the technology you have today and how to get the most value out of that, which goes back to what we were chatting about on all the enablement and people and culture side around that. But maybe about 10%, you know, of that team's allocation should be that continuous experimentation and piloting, uh, you know, pioneering, you know, what other relevant technologies or changes in the technical landscape are happening so that we're staying on top of it. And if your ratio is 95-5 or 85-50, you know, yeah, depending on the nature of your business and how much rapid technological change is impacting you, um, you will adjust that accordingly. But just making sure that there is some dedicated slice of investment in that, uh, I think, is a, a reasonable way to <laughs> approach what is ultimately a, an intractable problem, you know, at, uh, you know, its universal scale. Yeah. And even if that investment of time is small, even if it's 5% or... 30 minutes a week, you know, getting started, getting started. Cause I think sometimes if you're not in the space of something that's new and different, it can feel overwhelming, but you just got to kind of put one foot in front of the other and start tasting it, start reading, start playing around with it. And over time, you'll at least be further ahead than where you were before. And also now, I don't know which episode number this is going to be, but I've probably done about 20 of these interviews. And I think back to, you know, there's definitely a pattern with a lot of people, I think Raja from MasterCard, So Young from from EOS, a lot of people kind of saying, hey, you need a framework of how you spend your time, how you allocate your budget and resources to the current things that you're doing and the new things that are gonna come. And you might know what those are, but you also might not know what those are, but you still need to make the time to get out there. So I think I'm just kind of piecing that together. And now having had a, a few of these interviews, it's interesting to kind of see what a lot of smart people are saying in similar ways and try to frame that up for the people listening. Scott, for you, you know, maybe you're not on top of all of it, but you're much more on top of it than most people, including me by a long shot. How do you stay on top of it? Like what is a day in the life or what is the process? What's the, what's the um, kind of rituals that you go through to try as best as you can to stay on top of everything that's going on? Yeah. So one of it is I dedicate a, uh, chunk of every day to be very exploratory in just reading uh, a lot. Um, and, you know, I sort of like triangulate on a few different sources. Uh, so there's actually the tech industry press, you know, things like, you know, TechCrunch and VentureBeat, which is fascinating how many things are coming through that channel that either directly or indirectly are going to be an impact, uh, you know, in the marketing world. Um, you know, I look at the other side of the universe there, which is, uh, you know, the, the traditional more marketing press, uh, you know, um, uh, the folks at martech.org, you know, ad age, ad week, all these ones, just cause it's interesting. They, they, they rarely frame it from a technology perspective, but you see the sort of, you know, blips of like things that people are innovating 
described through a marketing lens, but it's an underlying technology change, you know, that's empowering that experimentation. And then the third and probably the largest is actually connecting through a, a, a medium uh, and then <laughs> don't hold this against me, like even Twitter. Like if you, you know, there's clearly a set of noise on Twitter that I would highly advise staying away from if you appreciate your sanity. But at the same time, there's an enormous number of like technical and marketing professionals, you know, who are on there. And if you're following those right people, you know, and they're sharing, you know, just hey, things that they come across or things that they're thinking about, you know, to be able to synthesize a little bit of that, um, you know, from a broader peer universe. Um, I mean, actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, why have I become more reliant on that? Oh, it's well, because for the past two years, I've been basically sitting in a nine by 13 room. Before that, I would have said, like, one of the things you should do is you should get out to these conferences. You know, I mean, again, you don't have to go to all of them, like go to one, maybe two a year. But, you know, part of that is actually even walking around trade show floors. Very interesting in, you know, just sort of the serendipitous discovery of like who's coming to market, what are they trying to talk about, you know, the sessions are interesting. But the best stuff is when you just sit at the bar at the end of the day and you've got other peers who, you know, are doing stuff and just, hey, what have you been seeing that's sort of interesting and cool? Um, there's a lot of knowledge to be gained from that. Yep. I love it. And actually, one of the events that we do is a very small, it's actually, um, so we got connected through Carlos of MarTech Alliance, and he does something similar with these dinners where he's bringing people together um, and having kind of like a roundtable conversation. I find those so fascinating because you're in a room with other senior marketing people all talking like about what you're seeing to each other. And that's such a valuable thing for me just to listen to what people are seeing, what they're thinking, what they're excited about, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that while there's all the, everybody wants like, what's the newsletter, what's the website, what's the Twitter account I should follow. Oftentimes just having conversations with people, um, is a really helpful way to do it. Scott, do you have, is there like a Twitter, have you made a Twitter list or anything like that for MarTech? Um, I haven't, but I'll be honest, actually half of my feed, probably two thirds, three quarters of my feed, whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn is me sharing the other things that I come across. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So yeah, basically so anything I, I find you. that's interesting that I'm learning from, I turn around and I just share it immediately. I think um, I do. So, uh, I, do I follow you? I need to double check. I'm resetting my Twitter. I decided <laughs> I'm going to do it this weekend. So like I said, I've got the flight to Boston. I'm going to unfollow everything and I'm going to refollow and you will be one of the first people I refollow just because there's way too much noise to signal because I got on it in 13 years ago and just things have changed. People have changed. I need to reset it because there is value there. I just need to find it. So Scott, I want to talk about, um, and we've touched on it a little bit, but for people listening who not only might not think of themselves as MarTech experts, but are maybe in organizations where there's not a lot of technology or modern technology being used within the marketing function, how do like what should they be thinking about in terms of how they get started? What are kind of like the basics of MarTech implementation in the world of 2022? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a hard one because I sort of look at MarTech, if we oversimplify, there's kind of like two categories to it. There's like these core foundational systems that become your platforms around which your stack is built. 
Uh, and then there's this incredible variety of specialist apps on top of that. Um, and some of the things that are most exciting about this, you know, flurry of all these specialist apps, thousands of them, is there, many of them are relatively lightweight to adopt. Like, you know, hey, if I'm doing a particular project and I'm experimenting with this thing, I could actually just go and I can get this without a credit card and I can run it. And I'm actually within reasonable governance boundaries. Um, I think that can be a very productive, uh, you know, way to adopt new technology. But the caveat there is I'd be very nervous about doing that outside the framework of what a core platform stack foundation is. And if your company basically does not have a good platform stack foundation, yeah, you know, sort of end running around that to like, you know, experiment with little things out there on the side. Um, I think it's dangerous. I, maybe dangerous is overstating it. It's just like, at the end of the day, you're just not going to get the value, uh, you know, out of this. Because ultimately, like, the core of all this stuff comes down to the data of like, okay, who are the people we're engaging with? What do we know about them for the things we're trying, whether they're campaigns or programs or experiences? Like what's the data on what's actually working or not working, you know? And if you don't have the mechanisms to essentially aggregate that data and be able to, you know, do that, you know, sort of oversight uh, of it and learning from it, then yeah, you definitely, you end up in this mode where uh, what's the Shakespeare quote, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, you can just waste a lot of energy and effort and not really get the value out of it. So boy, if, you're, if your MarTech stack is something you're like, yeah, this really sucks. Um, I, I, I would be raising the flags, ringing the, the bells. This is, it's 2022. This is something you're gonna wanna like <laughs> get resolved pretty quickly about now. <laughs> Well, bonus points for the first Shakespeare quote on Scratch. That's gonna uh, that's gonna have to go in the Scratch Hall of Fame. Well done. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it, you know it does kind of come back to, and it's been something that we've touched on a little bit. Just thinking about it, bringing it to the top of your priority list, asking yourself and your team, "Hey, where are we on this?" Doing a bit of a gut check. If we were gonna start this over from scratch, would there be more technology that we would bring in? Would there be different technology than we would bring in? But just the awareness that comes before any action that you want to take. Um, so that's, that's helpful for me thinking about it and thinking of, you know, potential clients that we work with, like it really does need to start there. Yeah. I'm kind of imagining like, Oh, like if I'm in retail, you know, and uh, yeah, my whole business is based upon having like, you know, retail locations where people are coming engaging with me, but Oh yeah, actually the, only actual retail locations we have are these sort of like, you know, dodgy, rusted warehouses, you know, where, you know, people get mugged to even try and get to it, right? Like, you would be like, hey, something's seriously wrong here if we're a retail business and that's actually our retail channel. Um, it's the same thing like in a digital world with MarTech. Like, if you've kind of basically got a dodgy, rusty warehouse of like a MarTech thing, but like half of your universe is actually trying to engage with you digitally, yeah, there's there's no way around it. You've got to you've got to fix that foundation. So, Scott, I you probably know this quote. I forget who said it. You probably do, but the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. When it comes to Martech, what is the future that's already here but not evenly distributed? What's out there that we're all going to be using in a couple of years? We just don't know it yet. So, I think the I we started out you said I could have one 
theme I'm paying attention to. And I said, well, I kind of got two. Um, you know, the first one we talked about is this no code side of stuff, which um, I think is one of those cases. There are companies that have empowered uh, a lot of people on the edge of their organization to just do amazing creative things. It's almost like all the noise you hear around the creator economy. Can you just imagine for a moment if we could harness, you know, the energy of that creator economy in the context of the corporate economy? I mean, just, you know, an order of magnitude change. And there are companies that are doing this. This is, you know, uh, a, a, a case where I think five, ten years from now, this will just be what marketers have all these tools and all these capabilities and we won't, uh, you know, give it a second thought. Um, very closely related to that is a topic that I've been doing a lot of research on this past year to, uh, which is, I, I call it big ops. Uh, and it's basically a bit of a play on big data uh, because, you know, for 10, 15 years, we were talking about, oh my goodness, big data. Like we're gonna have all this data, you know, how do we even just like manage it, you know? And then how do we think about like getting value out of it and insights out of it? And the good news is for most organizations, we're actually kind of getting our arms around data and big data, at least at the you know, core. But what's fascinating is now what's happening on top of that data. You know, and the no-code stuff is a bit of an example of this, but it's like all across the company now, we have all these different apps and automations and algorithms and analyses and you know, live agents and all this stuff that are all working with this data. And they're contributing to it, they're reading from it, they're changing it. Um, it's not very well coordinated though in most companies. Like, and, and this is where I see it as like the challenge isn't now the big data, it's the big ops of all the operationalization that we're doing on top of that technical foundation. And this is a big challenge. Just as big data was a big challenge 15 years ago, I think for us trying to figure out like, oh my goodness, like how do we orchestrate this stuff and you know, manage it and govern it? Um, that is kind of where we're at now. And there are definitely a set of companies that are like, you know, uh, uh, on that upper quartile of, you know, getting their arms around this. But I think for most of us, yeah, this is a big open challenge that it's going to take us a number of years to be able to make progress through. It is interesting. The big data conversation, at least for me, has been coming up less recently. I actually don't think I've heard somebody use that term in a while. Um, but you're right. Now it's more about, okay, well, it's there. We all know it's there. It's not about talking about the fact that we have data. It's, well, what do we actually do with it? How do you operationalize it? How do you build a culture that's open to it, that knows how to use it, et cetera? Scott, are there um, a couple MarTech startups that you're really excited about? I mean, you've got obviously the 5,000 that you cover every year, but are there, com are there some that you want to call out that maybe we could include in the show notes just to let people click through and see what this kind of future of MarTech might look like? Sure. Um, well, I'll give you a couple with the disclaimer that uh, I actually advise these two companies, so this is why they're, they're top of mind for me. Um, uh, one of them is a company called OfferFit uh, that is essentially, uh, their tagline is from AB to AI, you know, and basically they've created an AI engine for particularly loyalty or lifecycle marketing. Instead of having to do manual A-B tests, they've created an AI engine that actually lets brands at scale, like run this continually optimized process of, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, offers, upgrades, all these sorts of fun things. So they're cool to look at. Uh, and then another one is a company called Workato in sort of this big ops side of things uh, that is 
like a workflow automation enterprise automation platform, but they've actually really leaned into this recognition that, okay, we got to do two things uh, to like make enterprise automation a reality. First of all, we need to give the tools, make them accessible to a much broader set of people. It's a bit of that sort of no code, low code empowerment. But at the same time, because we're talking about large organizations adopting this, we need to make sure we have a governance mechanism so that as we have all these different people who are, you know, doing these, you know, uh, uh, creative uh, capabilities on top of the platform, that the guardrails are good, that we have the visibility into what's happening, you know, that the accountability, the monitoring for that, um, that's super important. Again, I think a lot of companies are going to be doing more stuff in that way, but Workato is one example you can look at of like, oh, so that's how a platform could do that. Awesome. So Scott, we've covered a lot of grounds. We are coming up on time. Before I let you go, one, be great to know where people can connect with you. And two, if people had to take one thing out of this conversation and do one thing differently tomorrow after listening to you and what you have to say, what would that be? I think the one thing would be really deeply accept that your technology and operations capabilities are one of the strategic pillars of marketing. You don't have to be an operations person yourself. You don't have to be a technologist yourself. It's probably better if you aren't. But you got to make sure in your marketing organization, you've got that as one of the fundamental pillars because uh, without it, <laughs> the, the, the world is getting really difficult if you don't have that capability. Yeah, it really doesn't get talked about enough, doesn't the technology, the operational side of things. But um yeah, it's some it's and and part of it is because probably a lot of marketers don't come from that type of background. You know, they don't come from the technical side or the operational side. Um, so I think that's a really great point. So Scott, if people want to connect with you, check out more about what you're doing, where would you like to direct them? So my uh, my blog that covers this is chiefmartech.com and that's chiefmartech without the h at the end. Don't ask why. Uh, Poor branding choice. Do not come to me for branding recommendations. Um, uh, and then I'm also that same at Chief Martech without the H on uh, uh, LinkedIn and just uh, on uh, Twitter and then just Scott Brinker on uh, LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, I will let you get back to the cold in Boston, which I will be experiencing in 20, 26 hours when I land. But Scott, this has been really educational, really informative, really inspiring. For me, I'm going to start making a little bit more time to get out there in the MarTech world and get a taste of what's going on. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me as your guest. Have a great day. Take care. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.